Man, this is a cool time. It's, a, it's, is my, it's my favorite time when I look at Scripture because there's so much anticipation, like this sort of leading up to the, the crucifixion. History is pregnant with anticipation. Like it's, it's insane what is going on in the lives of the disciples and the Pharisees and the people. I mean, even Jerusalem at the time was like full of chaotic expectation. So what's happening in history at this point in time is that each year there were three pilgrimage feasts that the Jewish people made, and Passover was the big one. It was the one that everybody made sure they made it to Jerusalem for. They would gather up in Jerusalem to celebrate and remember that God had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, right? That the Holy Spirit had passed over those doorways. If you remember your Old Testament history, they were marked with the blood, lamb, uh, blood of a lamb. The Holy Spirit par- passed over those, saved those families, delivered the, the Israelites out of the hands of Egyptians, of the Egyptians, and they were celebrating and remembering God's deliverance. They were also coming together to worship as a community, and they would make annual sacrifices for their sins and the sins of their families. And it was crazy. This small city packed with thousands upon thousands of pilgrims that were making their way all the way up for this incredible feast. And they started traveling early because it was a week-long festivity that sort of led up to Thursday, which would be the day that they celebrated the Passover meal. And Jesus and his disciples, because they were Jews, they were making this pilgrimage. And I told you last week when we talked about the scene that unfolded at at Bethany when they were at the house of Simon the leper with Mary and Lazarus and uh, Martha, that they were headed there for the Passover and they stopped in Bethany where this dinner was being held in their honor. And I told you last week that this dinner really is, and I think should be included in the last week of the life of Christ. It should be wrapped up in there because after all, it's Mary pouring out this expensive perfume and, and the way that Martha was serving and, and Lazarus that were there, they were sort of setting the stage for what was to come. But for those of you that weren't here last week, the quick rundown is that Jesus had done this incredible miracle where he had raised Lazarus from the dead, right? We've talked about that for weeks and weeks. And a short time had passed, and as he was making the trek from wherever they were into Jerusalem, they stopped in Bethany, which is only a few short miles from Jerusalem, where a dinner was being held in Jesus' honor. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus kind of orchestrated the details, and it was held at this guy named Simon the leper's house, who was a a leper that was now healed. And they were holding it his house, and most likely it was filled with all of these people that just dearly and deeply loved Jesus, that they had had their lives changed by him. And it was this incredible scene. And in comes Mary, right? And she's got this pint or 11 ounces of pure nard perfume, this incredibly expensive perfume that was made from the root of a plant that grew on the Himalayan mountains. And she comes in with 11 ounces of it, which today would be valued about $25,000. And John tells us that she pours it all over his feet. And we talked about the incredible sort of sacrifice and the, the, the purpose of this perfume. We talked about all those pieces, but she dumps all that out on his feet. She begins to wipe it up with his hair. And, and we, we, we look at that story and we talked about what happens when the love that we have for Jesus actually for a moment aligns with his value and worth as followers of Christ. And the remarkable, beautiful picture that that is. Well, what we're going to learn this morning is that the very next day after this incredible feast, Jesus and his disciples head into Jerusalem, which what is known as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, depending on how your Bible kind of frames it out. And we'll see why those names matter in a moment. But that's what's unfolding. And after that feast, the next day, we're going to see the entire trajectory of human history change forever. 
And so this morning, we're going to be in the second part of John chapter 12. So if you've got your Bible, let's open it up, let's pray, and then let's unpack a story that should be, and hopefully is, all too familiar uh, for us this morning. Let's take a moment, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who does not often meet our expectations. You exceed them, you move beyond them, you work in different and incredible and miraculous ways. And what we're going to see this morning is a God that doesn't meet our expectations. And what an incredible thing that truly is. Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word, you would teach our hearts. That you would take a story that we're familiar with, that maybe we've heard hundreds and hundreds of times, and you would breathe new life into it. And that you would meet us right in the middle of where we are. Take a moment in your own heart and in your own life and just pray that God would teach you this morning that he would instruct you, that he would whisper to your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Uh, We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Our entire goal on a Sunday morning is that this whole thing doesn't revolve around you. But it revolves around people coming face to face with a God who is changing lives. And just pray that God would move in someone else's life. Maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. Just pray that God would move in them. Lord, I pray that you would teach our hearts this morning. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So chapter 12, verse 12, right? The very next day is we're picking up right after this incredible feast that had been given or this incredible dinner or this, this moment where Jesus gathers with those that loved him and had their lives changed by him. This is that next day. And this day marks the beginning of what will change human history forever. Um, it will set the course of Christianity ablaze and it will ultimately change your life and my life. I mean, the reason we gather here is essentially because what unfolds over the next seven days in history. So let's, uh, let's take a look and see how we start this process off. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, for as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that he had done these things and that they had done these things to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So hopefully you've heard this text. Most of us heard it from Luke or Matthew, which is the one we actually read as we were in worship. It's got quite a bit more detail in Matthew and Luke. And John sort of uses it more as a transition to get us to the miraculous events that are going to unfold in these upcoming days. So John sort of sees this picture as a way of getting us 
to the actual picture that's going to paint the deity of Christ. So he doesn't spend as much detail as the others, but there's still a ton here, a lot that we've heard and a lot that I want you to see and know. So he starts off by telling us it was the next day. So Jesus had this feast. The next day comes and they gather and they set out for Jerusalem. And this is this sort of really famous entry, right? We call it the triumphal entry and we'll see why. We call it Palm Sunday because of the palm branches and we'll see why that's important. But they set out on this trek to head into Jerusalem. And John tells us that the great crowd that had gathered basically heard that Jesus was coming and they came out to meet him. Now, you have to remember, this great crowd is not the crowd of people that came to the, fe the feast at Mary and Martha's house. The great crowd is those that are making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. We are talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims, not counting those that already lived in Jerusalem, that have made their way or are making their way to this incredible event that is going to unfold all week of the Passover. And so they have made their way, and the people... For the past year or so, I've had this kind of growing expectation that maybe this Jesus is the one that they'd been waiting for. The Jews were living in anticipation that a Messiah was coming. The law and the prophets told about this Messiah. It was clear that God was going to be sending a Messiah that was going to come and redeem Israel. He was going to come from the line of David, and he was going to establish a reign. And the people knew it, and they eagerly looked for it. And the rumors had been going around that just maybe this Jesus was that Messiah. I mean, after all, he was doing things that only God could do. They'd heard the miracles of people being healed, of feeding 5,000, of Lazarus being raised from the dead, of demons being cast out, that the, the sick were becoming well, and the blind were given sight, and the people were beginning to believe. And that's part of what made the Pharisees so incensed, is that the people were believing that Jesus may be the Messiah, and Jesus threatened the positions of power and the place of the Pharisees. And so there was this growing, palatable tension between the people that were beginning to believe that maybe Jesus was the Messiah, and the Pharisees that wanted him dead because he threatened their very way of life, their positions of power, and their place in the community. And so the people had heard that Jesus was coming, and there was this, this feeling like maybe this Jesus, he's the one, and he's coming to do what we need him to do, what we expect him to do, which is to reestablish us as this incredible nation that we once were. You have to remember, right, the Israelites, they're under Roman rule. They had some power to semi-govern themselves, but really they had no real power. The Romans were their oppressors, and they wanted and needed to be delivered in order to be their own nation again. So we learn that Jesus is coming into town, and the people that had gathered for the feast, right, the, the Passover feast, heard that he was on his way, and they took palm branches, and they went out meeting him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So the people that were there, not just the disciples, they heard that Jesus was coming and they left Jerusalem, went down the road, because Jerusalem's a city built on a hill. They go down the road towards Bethany and they take palm branches and they begin to wave them and lay them on the ground. Matthew tells them they took their cloaks off and they laid those on the ground as well. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, essentially they're saying, you are the Messiah, right? We believe that. Hosanna really just translates as save now. They're basically believing that Jesus is coming as this king who is going to reestablish them as a political power. And they took these palm branches, which is a sign of royal homage, and they laid them on the ground, right? Because kings didn't just walk on dirt. 
And so they laid these palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. You remember the scene. You've heard it many, many times if you've been to church at all in your life, right? And they had this expectation that this was Jesus. Second part of that says that Jesus was on the back of a baby donkey, on the foal or the colt of a donkey to fulfill the prophet Zechariah, who in chapter 9, verse 9, says that the king, the Messiah, would come riding into town on the back of the baby donkey, right? And so the other texts give us a little bit of clue about how Jesus got it. It's amazing, but John just sort of says that he found one. And they, they took that and they put Jesus on the back of this baby donkey and he goes riding up the hill to Jerusalem on palm branches laid out by the people as they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Well, this picture, of course, is one again that was given to a king. You know, kings would go out to battle and when they would return in those days, they would come into the chanting of the crowds, if any of you have seen like the movie Gladiator, you know how that looks. Caesar comes back into Rome and the people gather by the thousands and they line the roads and they shout things and he comes in on the back of a chariot like a conquering war hero, right? Because that's what kings did. They came riding back into town as a hero on the back of a chariot or a stallion, right? But Jesus and the prophecy that was foretold about him comes riding back into town on the back of a baby donkey. Right, And so the expectation in the air is strong and the people have gathered and Jesus comes riding in just as scripture was telling on the back of this donkey into Jerusalem. And that's why we call it the triumphal entry, right? Jesus is triumphing in as king. And the question just is what kind of king? Palm Sunday is a reminder of those palm branches. John tells us in 16, the disciples didn't get it. And, and we have the luxury, right, of having history on our side because we can look back and understand what's going to unfold these next days. But even the disciples didn't quite get it. They didn't understand that only after Jesus was glorified, meaning raised from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him and they did these things to him. Only after Jesus was crucified and raised, the disciples go, oh my gosh, right, prophecy. Jesus was just fulfilling all these things that had been written about the Messiah, but even they didn't get it. Their expectations were different. 17 through basically 19 says that the, uh, the crowds, right, that had come with Jesus, that had their lives changed, they were people that loved him. And they continued to tell people, and people continued to believe and go out and see him. And the Pharisees again are outraged. They're just furious, right? Because what's happening? What they basically say is, see, it's just getting worse. It's getting us nowhere, right? Soon the whole world's going to believe in him. Now, you got to remember the Pharisees, they actually didn't disbelieve or discredit any of the miracles that Jesus had done. Many of the Pharisees were there when he had done the miraculous things. They didn't question whether or not Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They didn't question whether or not he fed 5,000. They were present at a lot of these things. But these things threatened they're positions of power. And so you see this little tantrum that they throw like, man, now the whole world's going to believe. And they're just mad. And so this tension between the people coming to believe that Jesus might be the Messiah and the Pharisees' anger and hatred that Jesus was pushing their places of power and position was at an all-time high and it was palatable. And they are now actively plotting to kill him. And as we learned last week, they're actively plotting to kill poor Lazarus too because he was raised uh, with Jesus. Hopefully, this is a really familiar story, right? 
Um, it's one that we've grown up with. Oftentimes we just hear it right before Easter, the Sunday before Easter is part of our Palm Sunday. Maybe you grew up in a large church or a church that the kids did a little deal or they waved palm branches. And, and it's an important day. But it's not an important day really because of what happens. I think it's an important day because of the word expectation. See, the, the people had this deep expectation that Jesus was a certain type of Messiah. And I think that you and I actually this morning are really gathered in a very similar way. Now, the scene may not be the same, right? There's, uh, we're not here for a big festival, but we, we all gather here with expectations that we have of Jesus. And they're very different person to person, but we all have expectations. And like the people, I think our expectations are oftentimes misguided. You got to understand these people were really looking for several things, right? They were really expecting a conquering hero. They desperately wanted a conquering hero. They wanted someone that was going to come riding in in the line of David, like the kings of the Old Testament, and was going to knock the Romans completely out of the picture, overthrow them, take Caesar and all of his people that he had placed in all their cities and push them out. They were going to reestablish the walls, both physically and metaphorically, and that person would sit on a throne and rule with power and victory. They needed and wanted a conquering hero because the Romans weren't leaving on their own. And so they expected that the Messiah would come in in that same line and he would overthrow the Romans and he would push them out and they would be able to breathe deep as their own people again and say, look what God has done for us. He's kept his promises and he sent us the hero that we've always wanted. It was a deep expectation of the people. Even those disciples were expecting the Messiah to do this. They also were expecting a political king. They needed someone to sit on the throne. They needed a king to point to and tell them how and what to do and to negotiate all the sort of peace settlements when they pushed the Romans out and with the other groups. They needed a political hero. They wanted them, someone to come in and save them now. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord, right? And as Matthew would tell us, in the line of David, they had this political expectation that Jesus would come in and politically meet all of their needs, that he would negotiate all the right things, he would remember all the right people, and he would meet their social and political agendas. They all expected this. Now, they had varying degrees of what they would look like, but the people that were gathered there on Palm Sunday believed and believed deeply that the Messiah would be this person, this conquering hero, and this political king. And they had expectations, right? And so I started thinking about this. The reality is, is that I, I have deep expectations when it comes to my own relationship with Jesus. And I think you do too. Now, our expectations may be a little different, right? I may not expect that Jesus will come in and become president of the United States or that he may not come in and, and do something nationally or whatever, but I have certain expectations in my own life of him. I come to the Lord all the time with those expectations. God, I need you to do this for me. I need you to heal this part of my life, fix this part of my life, give me comfort, give me security, give me protection, give me provision here. God, come in and do these things. I believe that you are a God who will do this. My prayer life is riddled with the expectations that I have on Jesus. I expect certain things out of Jesus when I worship. I expect certain things out of Jesus when I think about my own life, my family, the way I interact. I need my God to work in my life in certain ways. And I expect those things 
The problem is what happens when God doesn't meet our expectations. And this is what's happening right now in Israel, is that the things they expected of God, the things they expected of Jesus as Messiah, as the anointed one, as the Savior, over the next seven days are essentially not going to line up with what their hearts and lives desire. And I think the same question really boils down for for me in my own life, and most likely you, is what happens when God does not meet my expectations? What happens when I pray earnestly or I believe earnestly and ask God to do something and he doesn't show up at all how I need him to or I want him to? When the God of the universe does not meet my expectations? Well, that's what's unfolding here, right? And John even tells us the disciples didn't get it. In fact, they wouldn't get it for another seven days and maybe even until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit shows up, when they truly understand what's happening. Many of them are still like Thomas, are still going to struggle in their belief. What happens when God doesn't meet our expectations? There comes this place in our life where we begin to realize that the God that I want to believe in, right? The God that I want to meet all of my needs, the God that I want to come in and answer all of my questions in a way that I can live with, the God that I want to provide safety and security on my definitions and my terms, the God that I want to come in and relieve my stress and my anxiety and my worry and give me peace on my terms. When that God doesn't show up in that way, what do I believe about God? And these people, right, are wrestling with the exact same Their expectations were tiny. They wanted Jesus to come in as a conquering hero. They wanted to come and overthrow the government. Instead, what does Jesus do? He comes in and he conquers death. They wanted him to just sort of conquer the Romans. And Jesus comes in and through his own voluntary death and through the magnificent power of God, raises him from the dead. And Jesus conquers death for all of humanity. And all they were asking for was just to push the Romans out, right? They wanted a political king that would come in and meet their social and political agendas. They wanted him to come in and rule in Jerusalem and sit on a throne there like the kings of old. And what does Jesus do? He comes in and turns all social, turns all social and political paradigms upside down and he rules on a throne in heaven over all of humanity. And he calls all of our political and social systems into question. And he turns all of our me-driven structures on their head. The expectation of a political king or a conquering hero were turned completely upside down and shown how incredibly insignificant they were to the scope of what God is doing. And what I've been deeply convicted about this week is how tiny and puny and sad my expectations are compared to the scope of what God is doing in my life. And I'm not just talking about the scope of what God is doing around the world. I'm just talking about looking at my life, the scope of what God has done from my first breath to the one I draw now. My expectations are so tiny because they're driven around my comfort, my safety, my rest, my peace, my things. And God is at work as a God that is moving throughout me to draw me into his purpose and his ways. And I'm worried about things that don't matter in the scheme and scope of God. I want a God of convenience. I want a God of comfort. I want a God who aligns my heart with the things that I want. 
I want a God who comes in and meets my desires and my expectations. I want a God who answers me when I call. But I also want a God who costs me nothing. And the reality is, is that God doesn't meet my expectations. He exceeds them. God is at work in your life and in my life in ways that we couldn't possibly comprehend. He is moving and working through you and around you to accomplish his incredible glory and his incredible purpose and his incredible ways. And every one of those things is so much greater than anything else you can imagine that we are called to trust and believe that the God who put the universe into spinning motion is the God that can take care of the very pieces of your life. And he calls us not to lower our expectations, but to raise them. To not say, okay, God, well, I'm just going to be okay if you don't do this. But to say, God, I want to see where you're working and I want to join you. God, I want to see how you're using this tragedy in my life to shape and mold my heart and change the world. I want you to change my perspective and my expectations. I want you to grow them because right now I'm fearful and I'm living in the narrow. And the Israelites, they were living in the narrow. They were living in this sort of one-sided, God, do this. And what if God would have met all those expectations? What if he had come in and overthrown the Romans and reestablished Israel as a political power and come in on the back of a stallion and then ruled Israel, right? What does that leave for you and I, you and me? We're out. But what does God do? He comes in and he turns sin and death on its head. He dies for the sin of of humanity, and he grafts the entire world into his redemptive plan that he had set in motion from the day he created it, and we hit the pinnacle of that redemptive plan, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The fact that God didn't meet those expectations means that God is going to save me some 2,000 years later. There's going to be tragedy in your life. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be fears. There's going to be anxieties. There's going to be things that you can't put your finger on and you don't know. And we can ask God to meet our expectations. In other words, God, make this better. God, make this right, or God, do these things. And the humanity part of us wants to cry those things out. And honestly, they're not always wrong. But sometimes they're just so narrow because they're just focused on me. But what if I could change my heart to say, God, in the middle of all these things that I don't quite understand or get like the disciples and the people that love Jesus, how can I say, where are you working in the global sort of picture of your economy? And how can I trust you in the middle of that? That God, my own struggles right now, that maybe you're doing something in me that I need to see. Maybe you're building character. Maybe you're calling me to trust you. Maybe you're just, you're just at work. Jesus was at work. We learn that from Zechariah chapter 9, hundreds of years before this event ever happened. God told Zechariah to tell the people that the Savior would come, in, come riding into town on the back of a baby donkey. That God was at work hundreds and hundreds of years before to set this movement of redemption in motion. This entire universe does not revolve around your life here in this bubble. But the God of the universe is at work for his incredible redemptive purpose that you play a vital role in. And in the middle of that whole thing, the truth is you may have unmet expectations. And you know what? That's an okay thing. So my prayer this week has been, God, get me out of the narrow. Get me out of the fear. 
get me out of the anxiety and open my doors to an endless possibility of a God who is at work in all and through all to bring about his glory and his purpose. How can I trust you? This morning, as we close our worship, what I want you to think about in your own life is how have I narrowed my heart to God? How have I wanted to believe in a God that costs me nothing but gives me everything? How can I ask God to open my expectations to a much bigger picture that maybe God is doing a work in me that I can't understand yet like he was doing in the disciples? And maybe, just maybe, that work deals in the unexpected. So here's my prayer. Open your heart and prepare for the unexpected. This is where God moves and works. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for just this common truth. I know that it's not groundbreaking or life-altering for so many of us, but I just get stuck in a place in my life so often where I'm just so narrow in the way that I think. Much like the Israelites and the disciples, I just see you very literally, literally, like just one thing after another, one step after another, and I'm at the center of that universe. God, the truth is, when I look at my life and where you've brought me from over the past years, it's, uh, it's remarkable that I literally would be nothing without you. And yet I still wrestle with trusting you, and yet I still wrestle with fear, and I still wrestle with anxiety, and I still wrestle with this narrow expectation that wants you just to solve all my problems as they exist so that I'll feel better about my life. But God, you are a God that doesn't deal in my expectations. You are a God that oftentimes exceeds them and, or doesn't meet them at all. And I pray, God, that this morning what part of my heart would and part of our heart collectively as a church would be that we want you to blow open our expectations, to take us out of the narrow and into the glory to take us out of the simple and into the magnificent. That we would trust and believe that you are a God who is at work for your glory and purposes, even in the times in our life that we don't understand, we can't put our finger on. We can trust that you are and always will be who you say you are. You are a God who does not meet our expectations. You are a God who exceeds them above and beyond all things that are imaginable. So Lord, Give our heart great relief this morning that we can trust the God who goes beyond our tiny, narrow, and selfish expectations to this incredible, magnificent, wondrous life that you've called us into. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.